you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to 1 Samuel 28? 1 Samuel 28, and I'm going to ask uh, Angela Stonkis to come read. She's going to read the first several verses. And if, if you are uh, here for uh, Summer Blitz, I know the kids are, are leaving now, so uh, feel free to join them. I'm reading from 1 Samuel 28, verses 1 through 15. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Orem or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me, buy a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming out of the earth. He said to her, what is, her, what is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Thank you so much, Angela, for reading. We've been walking through the life of David and interwoven to the first part of the life of David is the story of Saul. You can't even tell the story of David without telling the story of Saul. It's like they run on parallel tracks and their life intersects so much until Saul's story comes to a tragic end at the end of 1 Samuel. We notice things, though, as they're running on these parallel tracks, we notice things about David because 
Saul is there, we can see differences and contrasts that I think we otherwise might not see if there wasn't this other character involved. We can hear and really understand David's heart for God because of Saul's heart, which is in a very, very different place. We can see things about ourselves if we'll look at these characters and process them. When, when where Saul goes is, for me, such a disturbing picture. And it's especially disturbing because he's not some warped, evil supervillain at the beginning. It's not as if he's just this, he starts as this satanic, demon-filled person that's corrupt from, from the very first time we've ever seen him. He's not that way. And so when you read his story, it, it, it rattles you. It makes it unsettling because he would have identified with the people of God. He would have have spoken about God, even in this passage he did. He would have spoken about God, invoked the Lord's name with ease. He would have done that. So when I hear of his life and where he goes, it's challenging because things changed with Saul. His life is painful to read. There's something, though, that I think we can notice even and appreciate. Sometimes it takes a contrast of something to really appreciate uh, something else. So, Kanan and I were watching just uh, yesterday for a little bit. We were watching Wimbledon, and uh, we both recognized that you can appreciate what those guys do on that court when you go watch me play. Like, it gives you great, great appreciation for the skill of professional tennis players when you see uh, my effort at any of that. And in a much more serious way, I don't know that you can appreciate grace as deeply until you see it in the backdrop of destruction. I'm not sure that you can fully appreciate grace until you can see like, oh, this is where the path can lead if left unchecked. Apart from the saving grace of God, this is how dark it can get. So with that in mind, I I want us to hear from God today. We'll spend a good bit of time looking at this chapter 28 and and then... uh, We'll we'll look over at a few verses in chapter 31, but before we even kind of dig into 28, you have to know a little bit of the backstory and realize that just how much Saul, at this point, even in chapter 28, had turned his back on his identity. And what I mean by identity is like, this is who you are, this is who you were made, this is what you were made for. So there was a design for Saul's life. The designer had a purpose. In 1 Samuel 9 and in 1 Samuel 10, you get the picture of like what God wanted to do in Saul's life. He was anointed and appointed by God as king over Israel. That was his identity. And as the king, the way it works in God's economy and in God's nation and God's administration is the servant, that the king is a servant of the people. Yes, he leads, but he leads by serving. He was given a stewardship to care for the flock of God known as the nation of Israel. But somewhere along the way, he lost that. He lost it. Saul's life began to look very, very differently. He turned his back on his identity. And when when you do that, when you turn your back on who you were designed to be by God, you become something else, something different. You have a separate identity. And then you begin to have to construct your identity as you see fit. Not as God says, this is how your life should look. 
This is where Saul lived for so many chapters. And, and the fact is, when we construct our life and our identity apart from God, life doesn't get easier. It only, in those circumstances, it only gets harder. So this is how it looked in Saul's life. When, when he begins to forget what he's been appointed and anointed to do, he begins to have to prove himself, and he begins looking over his shoulders for the competitors, the rivals that may take his throne one day. He's, he becomes suspicious. He's full of rage, and he's full of fear, and he's full of envy and hatred and violence. This is where he lived. When you turn your back on what God says, this is where this goes. You may not even have the, all, all of what Saul had, but if you don't hear loud and clear who you are in Christ, who God has made you to be, how quickly it can turn for you, for me, into a never-ending cause of trying to justify ourselves. Some of you, that may be the theme of your work week. You've got to get the numbers to a certain point. You've got to deliver something. And, and even in that, you are trying to say to the world, listen, I, I matter, I mean something, I, I make a difference, I'm valuable. Or maybe it doesn't come through your work, maybe it comes through a hobby, or maybe it, it comes through your family. And as long as everything in your family looks good, and certainly from the outside, but even on the inside, as long as it all looks good, you say, I'm okay. I feel justified. I feel worthy. I feel important. But the minute that goes you recognize I've constructed my identity on something that can never hold this sort of weight. Or maybe it's your performance, or maybe it's your looks, or maybe it's your academics, or maybe it's even your spirituality that you say, I've got to be, kind of feel some level of spirituality, but I find that to be a brutal treadmill that takes us nowhere, but completely wears us out. When we're trying to construct our own identity. By contrast, what, what David says, how David thinks, is so different. It's so, so different. David is far from perfect, but it, David knows what it means to be anointed by God. That's why he doesn't kill Saul in the first place. We've looked at that a couple times. David knows that God in his mercy and his wisdom and his sovereignty and his grace appoints and anoints. He raises up, he sets down. He makes decisions out of his identity of knowing God. Saul never seems to see it that way. The difference is like, can you imagine on Saul's lips, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't lack anything. It's hard to even imagine Saul saying that. Or the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my rock. You don't, you don't even picture Saul saying that. We are God's people, the the people, the sheep of God's flock, you don't hear Saul constructing his world with that identity. He had an identity that had grown independent of the Lord and that never goes well. I think we need to remind ourselves because we will, all you have to do is turn the radio on. It doesn't matter which, what station you turn to. You're going to hear narratives and you're going to hear songs that portray it as if you just be true to yourself you accomplish whatever you want. You build the life that you want. You construct it the way you want it constructed. And that is like the pinnacle of everything being exactly the way it should be. But those songs and those stories are, are false stories. They don't tell the truth. 
They don't tell, give you the picture of when all that crashes down. Something in your identity must be shaped outside of you, and it can only come. The only way you survive is when it comes from the Lord. We don't have to follow Saul's lead. I don't, and you don't. I can form my identity based on this, not how I perform, not by what status I achieve, not by how much money I have, not by how, how good I look, how much uh, my, my family seems to be in line. I don't have to form my identity in that. I can form my identity in this. I am known and loved by God, the God who made me, the God who knew me before, before I ever took a breath in this world. I can form my identity based on the fact that God sent his one and only son that I would not perish but have eternal life and nothing, nothing can change that. It's a mercy of the Lord when we see my identity should be wrapped up in God's design for me, the fact that I'm his child, the fact that I know him and I am known by him, that I'm his servant, that his will can be done in my life. Do you still know those things? See, that's not like cheap, positive self-talk that like kind of fades away the minute it gets out of your mouth. These are things that anchor your soul. And when life unravels for Saul because he has turned his back on the identity that God had given him, you have chapters like 1 Samuel 28. These are the final words, really, of Saul. The writer gives us a couple critical pieces of information, and you heard Angela read them. So like background information to understand exactly what's going on with Saul in this whole story. You have to know a couple things. One is that Samuel is dead. And that's significant because what, what, what the writer is giving us a clue is Samuel was the one who always had the word of the Lord. Samuel was the one that always had like the prophetic word that could be spoken. But now Samuel's gone and Saul can't hear from the Lord. Another critical piece of background information is that Saul at some point in time in the past had eliminated had eliminated any sort of uh, mediums or witches or anything of the occult. He had gotten, he had banished them from the land. But here's the situation in 1 Samuel 28, and that is a major battle's on the horizon. The Israelites, the Philistines, they're coming to battle. No small skirmish. This is going to be a big, big war, a big fight. And Saul is afraid. I think the ESV that was read earlier said he was trembling. Another, another translation puts it even more graphically, like his heart was thumping in his chest. He's terrified as what, what, what's coming. So what, what is Saul going to do the night before the battle? What will he do for this massive battle and this ongoing war with the Philistines. So I've read a ton of military history. And, and you begin to get a picture for what commanding generals do before the night of a battle. They gather the associates. They, oh sure, they, they, they say their prayers as well, but you get a picture of them like rallying the troops. As a matter of fact, I, I, I want to show you a picture here. So I grew up on, on a military post and the military hospital that I always went to was called Eisenhower Army Medical Center. And I remember walking in Eisenhower uh, and you look over to the right and there was this picture and it was a, like a, a wall-length picture of it. 
And this is, happened 75 years ago. This is the general at that time, Eisenhower, talking to the troops before D-Day, before the invasion in Normandy. And this is the picture, right? This is what generals would do. This is what the commander would do, preparing the troops, like telling them what you're doing is important. But how different from that is exactly what's going on in 1 Samuel 28, where Saul is going kind of behind lines and trying to find a way where he can talk to someone that can give him some advice because his, the question on his mind is, what, do I, what should I do? What should I do? I don't know what to do. What a different picture. It, it's so pitiful. The, the past years of Saul's life have been pitiful. He's been on this on and off chase with David. He's been an on and off fight against the Philistines. And so Saul says, first he inquired of the Lord. Can't hurt, right? Just throw a prayer up there, maybe God will answer, but God does not. God doesn't speak to him. Not by dreams, not by a prophet. Why do you think God, not, God doesn't answer? Why do you think God goes silent when Saul inquires of the Lord? I think we get another glimpse into Saul's life, and that is that Saul has repeatedly rejected a relationship with God. This is the pattern of his life. The pattern of his life has been to not listen to God. He had heard from God in the past, and he had ignored it. This issue is going to be brought up in just a few verses later. So why, why would God speak to him at this juncture? Saul has rejected that relationship with him. And even when he doesn't hear from the Lord, it's not like he sits there and waits on the Lord to speak. He just moves on to what's next. Okay, well, maybe I'll go through some like otherworldly counsel. He's willing to go to a spiritually dark realm to find out what he needs to do. The Godward dimension of his life is absent. It's gone. Saul has created this pattern where he, God has spoken and he hasn't listened. God has spoken and he hasn't listened. God has gotten his attention and he hasn't listened. And now it only gets worse as he gets bigger and bigger in his own eyes. Saul has voices speaking to him saying, you better be careful here, better be careful there. And he'll listen to the voices, but he does not find himself driven by a relationship with God. No restraint. Doesn't matter what God says. What he wants to do, he does. Jesus tells his disciples, you need to pray like this. You need to pray to your heavenly father, your will be done. And even in the garden, Jesus prays like this, not my will be done, but your will be done. But God's will being done sometimes runs cross purposes with what we want. And for Saul, he had no interest in doing what God wanted. Because his identity hasn't been formed on what God says, he lacks a relationship of trust. Where there should be devotion, there's only formality. Where there should be trust, he feels very independent of God. Where there should be obedience now, he'll do things his own way. And just so you don't hear me like coming down really hard on Saul, the contrast is David. David who says pretty regularly, again, David's not perfect, but David says regularly. And I hope you say regularly. I hope my heart is tuned into such a way where I say, I will wait on you, Lord. I will wait. Even when I don't get the answer in the time frame I need, I'm going to wait on you. 
Or I hope our words are much more like this, I will trust in you, even when I, I, I don't see things exactly like I want them to happen. You'll be my refuge. You'll be my strength. I will hope in you even when everything grows dark. Do you see the contrast? Our relationship can either be full and vibrant, not easy, but full and vibrant of talking to the Lord and and wrestling through the hard times, or it can hollow out to a mere shell where we've rejected having much of any relationship with the Lord. And, And I think we need to be careful even how we use that phrase, because, because I pretty regularly will say, like, you need to have a relationship with God. But the, the truth is, you do. Every one of us does. It's just whether that relationship is going to be one of devotion to him, of trust and reliance in him, of obedience to him. You have a relationship with him. But is it one that's vibrant? Is it one where you know the deep mercy the amazing grace, the steadfast kindness and goodness, the holy love of God. It is such a major step, I don't pretend it's not, to entrust your life completely to the Lord. It's such a major step. And for some, it's just a bridge too far. And because of that, we settle for way too long with not so much the holy God as revealed in Scripture, but much more of like a a text-support God. The God that comes to us, but the text-support God is the one where it's distance and it's fairly impersonal. You've got a problem in life, you call at your convenience, or maybe we should say your inconvenience, and, and God comes in as your servant Is this the kind of relationship where he just comes in and fixes some things and maybe even teaches you how to fix it for yourself next time so you don't have to call? And then he lets you get on your way with your life how you want to do it. He works out all the bugs and gets life optimized for you to do your thing. That may be where things are with you and God, but that's not much of a relationship. Surely that's not the relationship you want when life becomes shaky and complicated, when your heart is broken. You want something much, much deeper than that. You need comfort and confidence, but that, that's built over time. You need truth that can sustain you. You need deep understanding, and that comes through time spent in the Word, time spent in prayer, time spent in the community like this. That's where that comes from. Otherwise, you end up with this hollowed-out relationship. I know, I know it's a hard word. I know this isn't like a, a, a Sunday morning pep talk. But here's, here's my concern. If Saul could go to these places, then do I think I, I'm any better in my heart? Wouldn't it be better if we all just woke up and we're not spiritually groggy or asleep to what's going on in our heart? Wouldn't it be better if there was a Sunday where we woke up and were alive and alert and awake to exactly what God is saying to us today, that it's not okay to have a relationship that's been hollowed out, but we must pursue a relationship of love and trust and obedience because you follow a progression, and it's it's not a pretty progression of Saul turning his back on his identity And then you find him 
basically rejecting any sort of relationship with God. But finally, this, this goes somewhere, right? So 1 Samuel 28, if your Bibles are still open, look at verse 16. So that's right after what Angela read. Samuel said to Saul, why are you asking me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand. And he's given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. Because you did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. Tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him. He had eaten nothing all day and all night. What I want you to see, church, is in the end, Saul is moving. He is moving toward a definite destination. It's tragic. But the end of Saul's life is not surprising. That's what it's not. It's not surprising. It's weird when Saul leaves this woman, this medium that he's consulted, and when he leaves her, it almost has the same feel to me as another passage in Scripture when Judas leaves the upper room. There's just something dark and something final about Saul's visiting with this woman and then leaving. There's something significant. This is the destination that Saul had been headed. You know, it's interesting in one sense, like what, what Samuel has told Saul is going to happen. My goodness, how many times has this nation or that nation risen up in the Middle East? How many kings and how many, how many nations and tribes and, and generals have lost their life in that soil? I mean, ton. It, it doesn't even feel noteworthy, except for when you read it, it actually feels very significant. Something different's going on. Judgment seems so inevitable when God pronounces it. There's going to be no escape. So final as if nothing else matters. As a matter of fact, a few verses over, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Samuel 31 reads like this. So it just takes four verses to describe Saul. I mean, you got a whole book that's describing his life, and then almost immediately his life is gone. The Philistines fight against Israel. And in verse 1 of the last chapter of 1 Samuel, the men of Israel fled before the Philistines. They fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. The Philistines struck down Jonathan. It's a heartbreaking Heartbreaking thing to read in Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul. The archers found him. He was badly wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. He like sees the horror coming seeks a way to avoid it all. His life ends so quickly and so tragically. It's like, th- that's it. Except for, except for something else that's inescapable in Scripture. We could say, okay, that's it. His life is done. But a consistent theme in Scripture is that an encounter with God is unavoidable. So as much as he 
on the battlefield relieved himself of any more suffering than he might have thought he would encounter. As I read scripture, it seems again and again to emphasize there's coming a day where we meet God. There's coming a day when you meet God. This life isn't all there is to it. And there comes a day when it's too late to make preparations to meet God. There comes a day when everyone stands before God, not just as the loving Father, but as the all-powerful judge. Paul talked about it in Acts. He said there's a day appointed for judgment. In Romans, he talks about the wrath of God being poured out. In Hebrews, it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. James says there is a judgment that comes without mercy. Peter says there is a day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Jude says there is punishment of eternal fire. John, writing in the book of Revelation, says there is a lake of fire. So there's a day where we meet God, and that's where this destination goes. Yeah, earthly-wise, I mean, we, we can read the destination of Saul, but there's something that even makes me tremble more than that, and that is what meet, meeting our God. Seems like there's a line that comes, and I don't know exactly where that line is and where it's drawn for each of us. I, I couldn't speak for all of our hearts, but it seems like there's a line where you cross over and you really don't care about the things of the Lord anymore. You don't want to listen. You're not going to pay attention. I don't say that to scare you. I say that to reflect accurately what Scripture highlights again and again. I would not presume to know whether you've crossed over that line of not hearing, but, but here's what I want to assume. I'm going to speak to us, speak today as if we are people who have not yet crossed that line. So if you, if you are here and you've made it a pattern of not listening to God, you've made it a pattern to go through the motions, you made it a pattern to everybody else, maybe your parents, everybody else that looks at you, they don't know what's going on on the inside, but you know, if you made it a pattern of not humbling yourselves, not waiting on the Lord, not pursuing God, a, a lack of desire has become a, a norm for you when it comes to your relationship with God. You have become very, very comfortable with keeping God at a distance. This passage calls for a response. If you suspect that your relationship with God is not real, if you've carved out your own identity independently of Him, today could be the day of salvation. Cry out to the Lord. If you find yourself going even into a dark place like Saul, you can seek help. I have to think that one reason that God might have brought you, one reason that you're even listening to what I have to say today, may be God's mercy to show you before it's too late, before you cross a line, that you could turn to the Lord. There's something better. There's something different. Today's the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Who should you reach out to? Who could you reach out to? Because there is a destination that is apart from Christ, but oh, there's such a different destination for those who are in Christ. I read of wrath and judgment, and I know because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, 
I will never taste that wrath. I will never experience that judgment. Christ has already taken it for me. I know my identity is shaped by the fact that I am a recipient of God's never-ending mercy. I've been invited and welcomed to the family. The status that can never be changed in my life is that I am a son of God. I'll live eternally in new heavens and new earth. In a moment, we will come to the Lord's table, and this is what it's all about. It's all about saying, this is my identity. I am in Christ, and this is my relationship. I'm trusting in him. I think we come to the Lord's table, and we celebrate what Christ has done for us, but there's no problem with us coming today alert and sober. The fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom. So we say, search me and know me. Lord, Lord, you know me. We can realize that we should have no confidence in our flesh. So we're going to put our trust in the Lord and have a life of growing reliance on the Lord, thriving obedience and a deeper, deeper devotion. So today, for those who have not yet trusted in Christ, I would say turn to him today. But for those who have confessed publicly that Jesus Christ is your Lord, Let's come to the table. Enjoy what God in Christ Jesus has done for you. Maybe to help us sort through where our hearts are. I I want you to look at a few questions. And these will be up for a little bit. So I think these might help us do some soul searching. To try to at least assess where is my identity, where is my relationship. How often am I intentionally telling God, speak, I'm listening. I'm your servant. Your will be done. When was the last time I waited on the Lord in active trust, not just passive resignation, like, oh, it'll be what it'll be? Is there one step that would deepen my devotion to the Lord? Not 25, there probably are, but what's one? We just take a moment to reflect on these, and maybe these will stir our affections in just a moment. In just a moment, the band's going to play. You can think on these, pray on these, sing sing along with the band. We'll receive the bread and the juice, and then we'll come back together and take it as a church family. All right? When I think of our salvation, there's sometimes a picture comes to mind of like a a literal rescue from, from drowning. And I think if you ever had that experience, then probably a couple different feelings. Every time you thought about that, a couple things would come to mind. One would, I I don't think you'd ever forget the terror that you might not make it, that your life would be destroyed. And I think you would never forget the relief that came when you were rescued. When I read of the destruction of Saul's life, really a lot of self-destruction in it, because of what our Savior has done for me, I know that's, the story of Saul, but I live in the story of Jesus Christ. That will never happen to me. What a different story is written, and because of that, we have relief and rescue. It wasn't wasn't a cheap rescue, though. It took our Savior his life. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of him, we take it. And when he had given thanks, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me, in remembrance of him. Through our singing, through our prayers, through hearing God's word read, what we've done today, even through this taking of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are saying, this actually shapes our identity, doesn't it? We are his. This nurtures our relationship. And if you do not, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if at least if you don't know where that relationship is, there will, there will be men and women that would be glad to talk with you. Any of the pastors would be glad to talk with you. Who could you talk to even before you leave today? To be certain of your identity, to know where your relationship with God stands to have a clear picture of a destination that is going to be forever with the Lord. I would ask you, please consider those things and please feel free to to talk to us. We'd love to have that conversation. I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Champ to come and he's going to close our service today. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that you speak to us and that when you speak, you speak out of love and you give us clarity, clarity not only about the good things, but about the difficult things. You've shown us today how things end when we resist you, how life goes south when we turn our back on the life that you offer us. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to have ears which hear and eyes that see what you are saying and showing today. Thank you for also telling us how it ends with your son and with all who are in him. So, Lord, with the words that we've heard today that have been planted in our hearts, bear fruit even this week. Not for our sake, Lord, but for the glory of your name. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.